0: Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday.
1: On January 2nd, 1956, a 29-year-old Jim Elliott excitedly jumped out of his bed, kissed his wife Elizabeth and 11-month-old daughter goodbye, and he boarded a plane. It was a day that he had dreamed of all his life when he would finally get to tell the Hurani people about Jesus. Elliot's missionary team had spent months dropping gifts down via plane to this Remote native tribe, in the Ecuadorian jungle, while shouting down friendly messages via loudspeaker in the Harani language to try and build trust with them. They were known to be a dangerous tribe. And at long last, the day came, they decided the time had come to meet the Harani face to face. But just six days after landing their plane on a nearby beach. Orani warriors emerged from the jungle, spears in hand, and killed all five men. Now many would say that the only thing great about Jim Elliot was his stupidity. But according to Jesus, Jim Elliot was a great man. Because, according to Jesus, whoever believes in me, Jesus, will do greater works than these, even that I do. John fourteen, twelve It's the verse from which we've taken our sermon title, part two of our sermon this week. We observed last week, in part one, that the greater works that you and I have been called to as believers, Jim Elliott, missionaries, and all the church throughout history have been called to is not healing the sick or even raising the dead, but rather the greatest of all works that we and aspire to is evangelizing the nations, taking the gospel, the euangelion, the good news about Jesus, that all of humanity has sinned against and broken relationship with a holy God, but Jesus, the perfect God-man, he laid down his life and he died in our place to reconcile us to this holy God, and then he rose from the grave to give us victory over death in his name. That good news, taking that gospel to all nations, is a great work. And that is a perfect word for it. Great. You know, the Greek word that Jesus used in John 14, 12, or anyway that was translated from the Aramaic that he would have used, the Greek word is even better. Megas. Because it can really mean three things. When Jesus said, If you believe in me, you're going to do mega works. I think he meant it in all three senses of that word. Great can mean very good, as in it's a beautiful thing that we get to share in the, in the privilege and the delight of, of sharing this life-changing, saving news of the gospel with those around us. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But great can also mean large, of considerable size. And to be sure, taking the gospel to all nations, to every single ethne, it's the Greek term there the Bible uses, ethne, people group. According to Joshua Project, there are 17,433 distinct people groups in the world today. And taking the gospel to every single one of them, even the hostile remote ones like the Hurani. That is a tall task indeed. But thirdly, great can also mean highly significant, important. And we saw last week that what makes this great commission so great in that sense, so vital, so urgent, is God's heart for the nations. I took you last week to 19 different passages from the Old Testament alone where we see God's heart for all peoples on display in his word. Because 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But, John 14.6, salvation only comes through Jesus. Romans 1.16, it's the gospel alone, the good news about Jesus that has the power to save people. And therefore, Romans 10.14, God wants us, those who have already been saved by Jesus through faith in the gospel to now take that same gospel to all the nations. So last week in our study of Acts, we witnessed a major turning point in that mission. You will remember that all the way back in chapter one, the resurrected Jesus, just before he ascended back into heaven, gave his final marching orders, parting words, Last, like, this is what I want to leave you with, last words on earth to his disciples turned apostles, these sent ones. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we have studied now chapters 2 through 7, they reached Jerusalem. Chapters 8 and 9, they reached Judea and Samaria with the gospel. But it wasn't until last week in chapter 10 that the church... Will begin to take the gospel towards the ends of the earth. Now I say towards the ends of the earth, because Jesus has commissioned us to witness to the end of the earth. In other words, to actually make it there, all the way to the end, to make disciples of all the nations, Panta Ta Ethne, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, to preach the gospel to all of creation, Mark sixteen fifteen. But Acts chapters ten through the end of the book, 28, are going to record the spread of the gospel towards the end of the earth, because as we're going to see, the gospel won't actually make it there. Paul will make it as far as Rome, which was an enormous achievement. When I start showing you the map as we work our way through the the next 18 chapters, how far that early church 2,000 years ago, with the limitations and resources and transportation and all of it, they were able to take the gospel. It was an amazing feat, but they only got as far as Rome in chapter 28, and that's where Paul's story ends. We've had 2,000 years since then, but as we're going to see this morning, we still have work to do as a church to finish the mission. So with that introduction in mind, let's get our bearings back in Acts chapter 10 specifically, and then we're going to dive into the text together. In verses 1 through 8, last week an angel of the Lord appeared to this devout but Gentile non-Jewish man, a Roman centurion, the enemy, named Cornelius. To this point in the book of Acts, again, six years now into the life of the early church, the gospel has only gone to Jews so far. Back in chapter 8, Philip preached to the Samaritans, kind of half-Jews, and then to an Ethiopian convert to Judaism, a eunuch, but that was the closest the gospel has gotten to, the Gentiles, to the 99% of us in the world who aren't Jewish, who aren't biological descendants of Abraham, God's chosen Old Testament family. This angel appears to Cornelius in Caesarea, and he tells him to send for a guy in Joppa named Peter. And so the very next day, as Cornelius' men are on the way, Peter, you remember, is up on the roof in Joppa praying, and he too receives a vision in verses 9 through 16 chapter 10 of his sheet descending from heaven with all kinds of non-kosher animals, reptiles, birds of prey, literally in Greek, creeping things of the earth, verse 12, that no good Jew would dare to touch, much less to taste. But then Peter hears this voice commanding him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. To which Peter replies, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. To which the voice, the angel, then replies, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this whole vision occurs three times. And that's where we're going to pick the story up in verse 17. And I want to do three things together this morning. First, we're going to read the text together. It's a long passage, but as I told you last week, I believe this is arguably the single most important passage in the entire book of Acts, at least for those of us who aren't Jewish. And so we're going to read the whole thing. Second, I want to show you in the text what I've already claimed to be true, what I have alleged is the main point of this whole passage and story, that the greater work to which Jesus is calling us is evangelizing the nations. And specifically, I want to show you why it is the greatest, the most beautiful, the most massive, the most urgent pursuit that we could possibly give our lives away to, and then why we must do so. And thirdly and finally, I want us uh, to be warned, I want to warn you of the single greatest threat to this pursuit of evangelizing the nations, the thing that can and often does keep us from the Great Commission and what we must do to avoid that threat, all right? So, uh, normally I, I let you stand for the reading of the word. There's a lot of verses here, so I'm not going to invite you and make anybody feel bad if your legs are, are uh, sore this morning, but hear the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 10, verse 17, all the way through chapter 11, verse 18. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. And they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house, and to hear what you have to say. And so he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and had called together his relatives and his close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, for I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And so when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, Why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, Then he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout all Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey, reptiles, birds of the air. I heard a voice say to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven and said, what God has made clean do not call common. And this happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who was called Peter. We will declare to him, by you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as it had on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorify God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now thanking you for your word, thanking you for your spirit, thanking you for the Great Commission, thanking you for so many of our forefathers and mothers brothers and sisters in the faith that took to heart your heart for the nations. That took seriously, that gave their lives away to fulfilling the great commission, making disciples of all nations, all peoples, even Gentiles, like most of us in this room this morning, that we might be included in your heavenly family. Father we thank you that you did not shut the door and shut us out and now father we pray that you might use this story this passage to help soften our hearts break our hearts for those who still have not heard the good news about Jesus that we might not shut the door in their faces God would you do a work in our hearts this morning, the hearts of those, even here, who might not yet know you. We might have people who don't truly know the gospel, or at least haven't truly received it. Receive Jesus this morning, would you do a work in their heart? And Father, would you do a work in the hearts of even those of us who have, but who need to have our hearts continue to be changed, to be more like your own heart, a heart for the nations, for all peoples. We pray this for your glory and And in your name, Jesus. Amen. Number one, we're called to the nations. I'm just going to quickly kind of pick apart each of these three movements in the text we see. Number one, we're called to the nations. That's what Peter's vision was all about. He comes to realize it's not just coconut shrimp. It's Cornelius, this Gentile who... God was calling Peter to reach with the gospel. That's who's in the sheet. This story is actually quite funny, humorous. I told you last week Peter was a slow learner. It usually takes him three times to really get things, you know, denies Jesus, You know, feed my sheep. Um, even here, after the third vision, Peter was inwardly perplexed, we hear in verse 17, as to what the vision might mean. And so as he's on this rooftop pondering it, praying about it, no doubt, God, uh, what does this vision mean? Out of the corner of his eye, Peter is distracted by these three guys who walk right up to the gate outside Simon's house. This is kind of like that scene in Bruce Almighty, uh, if you've seen it where Bruce is driving down the road, praying, God, just give me a sign. When a big truck pulls out in front of him with a flatbed literally full of signs, stop, caution, wrong way, you know, right before he wrecks his car. Um, It's kind of like that. That's Cornelius' men here at the gate, the answer to Peter's prayers right in front of him. What does it mean? Verse 18, the men called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And from the roof, verse 19, while Peter was still pondering the vision, he's he's up there, they could, not now, guys, trying to figure out this vision, can you all pipe down? So God helps him out. The Spirit, verse 19, said to Peter, Behold, these men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them, for I have sent them. And finally Peter puts two and two together. Oh, okay, I get it. The, the, the unclean food from the vision. It's, it's these guys. It's, it's Gentiles. So verse 23, he invited them in to be his guests. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal to you and me. This is already a paradigm shift, huge breakthrough for Peter. Pharisaic law, I told you last, last week, the oral interpretation that the Pharisees had, had added to piled on to God's Old Testament law, declared that just by virtue of entering a Gentile's home, or vice versa, letting them into your home, a Jew would become defiled. And so this is probably a first for Peter, sharing a roof with a Gentile, with three, Nonetheless. But then we read on and we hear that the very next day he rose and he went with them to Caesarea where Cornelius had already called together all his relatives and close friends in anticipation of Peter's visit. Cornelius tries to worship him, verse 25. Peter has to correct him, verse 26. And then Peter opens his address to this packed party in this way. He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or to visit with anyone From another nation. Translation. Y'all know I'm not supposed to even be talking to filthy Gentiles like you. But then Peter continues, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. This is a paradigm shift. And after Cornelius confirms the supernatural, God-ordained nature of this meeting by sharing his vision with Peter. Yeah, that angel appeared to me too. Then Peter opens his mouth in verse 34 and he declares, truly I understand now that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, please note that Peter did not say, whoever fears God and does what is right is saved by God forgiven of his sins. He doesn't say that. He said it's acceptable to God, as in an acceptable recipient of the saving gospel message. Only the gospel, Bible's clear, only the gospel has the power to save. And so Cornelius and his household, they are not yet acceptable to God in the most important eternal sense. They are about T minus 90 seconds away From being that kind of acceptable in God's eyes. We're going to see it in a second. Of being reconciled to God through saving faith. Nevertheless, this is historic. This is the first time ever that Gentiles were deemed even an acceptable audience for the gospel. Yeah, I mean, Jesus had said, don't cast your pearls before swine. That was a nickname that Jews had for Gentiles. They're swine, they're pigs. This is the first time Gentiles are deemed an acceptable audience for the God for salvation for Jesus. Of course, Jesus Himself had gone to the Gentiles, to the Gerasian demoniac in Mark five, to the Syrophoenician woman in Mark seven, to another Roman centurion in Matthew eight. But His followers had withheld Jesus from the Gentiles for the last six years now, and so this point, not any longer. And the takeaway for you and me this morning is clear, brothers and sisters. Jesus has called us to the nations, to all nations, panta ta ethnē. Jesus didn't say, let me tell you what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say just be faithful wherever you're planted. That's something we say in the church a lot these days. But Jesus never said that. He didn't say just just be faithful where you're planted. He actually said, I'm going to uproot you. Wherever your plan, I'm going to uproot you and send you. Jesus said, go and make disciples. Puriutentes. It's an active verb in the original Greek that can mean go, travel, journey, or die. Pretty interesting. Jesus didn't say, Go and make disciples of your neighborhood, go and make disciples of your workplace wherever you may be planted. He didn't say, go and make the most disciples possible. Like, figure out where you get the best return on investment with your gospel resources, and then strategically send your missionaries there. Jesus didn't say, go and make disciples of everyone. Jesus knew that many people, most people, would reject him as their Lord and Savior and refuse to become a disciple, to become a follower of him. And so when Jesus says, "Here's something he did say," Matthew twenty four fourteen, the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Pasin tois ethnacin. Same phrase as the Great Commission in Matthew twenty eight nineteen. 19, ethne. Different noun case. Same phrase. And then the end will come. So when he says this, Jesus isn't waiting on every individual person on the planet to receive him. because That'll never happen. He's not even waiting on every individual person to have the opportunity to receive or reject him necessarily before he returns. Jesus simply said, I'm not coming back until the gospel is preached to all nations, all ethnic, all people groups. And so that's a day we should long for earn or eagerly await and pray for. I mean, that's how the Bible ends, right? Book of Revelation, come Lord Jesus, come. Come on back, make it all new. No more death, no more crying, sounds wonderful. That's that's our heart's, should be our heart's desire. And yet, Jesus has been clear with us. It's not gonna happen until you've taken the gospel to all the nations. So 2,000 years later, how are we doing? Check in on the Great Commission. Well, I told you there are 17,433 ethne in the world. According to Joshua Project, 7,418 of them are still considered unreached. Unreached means they have little to no access to the gospel because less than 2% of the indigenous population are born-again believers who themselves have received the gospel and can pay it for to others. In other words, 42% of the world's population today, 3.29 billion, with a B, billion people alive today, for most of them, they will be born, they will live their entire lives, and they will die without ever even hearing the name of Jesus, without ever even knowing how they can be saved, or that they need to be saved. I'm just going to let that sink in for a minute. 42% of the world's population, 3.29 billion people, born in the wrong place, will live their entire lives and die without ever even knowing how they can be saved or that they need to be saved. And Jesus has called us, Jesus has commissioned us to reach them, to tell them the good news about Him. It doesn't mean that Jesus is indifferent to our neighbors, to our workplaces, our co workers. No, 1 Timothy 2 4 is clear. God desires all people to be saved, God has a heart for all people. And so we're called to preach the gospel in all of creation. Jesus also didn't say, only go to the nations. He says, preach every time you get a chance, share the gospel everywhere, but specifically, Matthew 28 19, we're called to all ethne. And that's an important distinction because I have heard people in the church today question, why are we spending so much money and effort sending missionaries halfway around the world to places like Japan and Senegal? when we've got unreached peoples right here at home, I've heard well-meaning Christians say things like, well, American teenagers are an unreached people group. First of all, American teenagers are not a people group. They're not an ethne. Even if they were, they wouldn't be unreached because they have tons of access to the gospel. They're going to be sitting right on this front row at service number two today. They might be unsaved, but they're not unreached. And so, where are these unreached people groups then? Who have no access to the gospel? They're right here, a map. I apologize for cutting off (coughs) a few of the Pacific Islander groups to squeeze the map onto the slide. Most of them are reached, so. But the dots in red are the unreached people groups. You may have heard of the 1040 window before. That's the rectangular area there. The middle, North Africa, Middle East, and Asia between 10 degrees north, 40 degrees north latitude, where 83% of the world's unreached people groups reside. That means if you live in that geographic window, that rectangle, there is a 61% chance that you've never heard about Jesus. Only 39% of the people in that window have heard about Jesus. So when I say the nations, that's who I'm talking about. The peoples who have not yet been reached with the gospel that's who we're called to the nations. Now, number 2, and I'll be much quicker on this point. We are called to evangelize. So we're called to evangelize the nations. That's who the nations are. Now let me tell you what evangelism is. Peter shares the gospel. Euangelion, good news about Jesus with Cornelius and his family in verses 36 through 48. The good news that Jesus lived to be our Lord, Jesus died to be our savior. Verse 39, and he rose to be our king, verses 40 and 41. that's all right there. Lived to be our Lord, verses 36 to 38. He died to be our savior. He rose to be our king. Now, And now, he calls all people everywhere, verse 43, to believe in him and receive forgiveness of sins through his name. That's the gospel. If you're here this morning and you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus as your Lord, your Savior, and King, Turn your life over to him in faith. You can be saved this morning. Hope and eternal life can be yours. Forgiveness of sins through his name, through Jesus' name, if you repent and believe. That's the gospel, the same gospel that we are now called to take to all the nations. Jesus didn't say, go do nice things in all the nations. Jesus didn't say, go build homes, dig wells, provide medical care, distribute food to all the nations. Again, he's not indifferent to those things. Jesus met people's physical needs while he was here on earth as well. But without the gospel, if we're not bringing them along with the water, the food, the medicine, the wells... If we're not bringing them the gospel, the all-important saving good news of what Jesus has done to forgive people of their sins against a holy God, meeting their eternal spiritual need for him, then we're just sending people to hell with full bellies and repaired retinas. They need spiritual sight, spiritual vision to see their sin and to see the Savior, Jesus. And best of all, when we give it to them, when they receive the gospel, they receive Christ himself. That's the best part of the gospel. Verses 44 through 48 here, how it ends. They get the spirit, they get Christ's very own spirit come to dwell within them. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. It's not just the gift of salvation. It's the gift of God's very own presence with you forever. His spirit. And then they're baptized, verse 48, with water as a symbol, a celebration of their spiritual rebirth. That's what baptism is. So, I'm not going to do a whole big long tangent, but I will just re-extend that invitation once again this morning to those of you who may have been sprinkled as a baby. You can come be baptized today. We'll fill up the, the Pool for you in between services. Lastly, number three, we are called not to hinder, not to hinder or impede or obstruct the spread of the gospel to all nations. We come to chapter 11 and this glorious story gospel's gone to the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit's descended on the Gentiles. Peter must have been glowing as he reports back to Jerusalem. But then we hear, when Peter reported back to him, the circumcision party criticized him. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? The circumcision party, which by the the way, sounds like the worst party uh, you could ever be invited to, These guys were about as fun as their name indicated. Uh, Paul will condemn them extensively in his letter to the Galatians, and we will talk about them even more in chapter 15 of Acts. When we get there, they show up again at the Jerusalem Council. But the Cliff's Notes version is that the circumcision party believed, or Judaizers they're called, believed that a person had to convert to Judaism, i.e. get circumcised, follow the Old Testament laws and rituals, etc., before they could become a Christian. Like, Christianity is just a subset of Judaism. You've got to become a Jew first, then Christian. So they are upset here with Peter. What are you doing, Peter? Preaching to these Gentiles, much less baptizing them. And they make him recount the entire story. They put Peter on the defensive in verses four through 17, they essentially put him on trial simply for doing what Jesus had called all of them to do, all the way back in chapter one. Take the gospel to all peoples." But I would submit to you this morning, brothers and sisters, that the same basic threat that we, we see in the circumcision party year is still alive and well in our churches today. And I think this is what it boils down to. We hinder the advancement of the gospel when we take the church, which is supposed to be all about Jesus, and we make it all about us instead. We hinder the spread of the gospel when we make Jesus' church all about us. If if you were honestly a bit put out by the fact that this whole Morning has not been about celebrating you and where's the Mother's Day sermon it's supposed to be honoring me? Can I just, can I just suggest maybe that's the problem. This church isn't about you. It's not about honoring you. It's about honoring him. And that's what the circumcision party forgot. Everyone in the church needs to look like us. They need to eat and dress and behave like us. But again, don't we do the same thing all the time in the church when we prioritize missionaries because they work with a population that looks like us? We should support this summer camp ministry because that's where I got saved. We should support this missionary because she was raised in the church. We should support them because that would be a beautiful place for me to go visit if we took a mission trip over there as a church. Nice vacation. These are... Not hypotheticals. So I want to just show you a short video here as we begin to wind down about some of the ways that we've hindered God's great commission as a global church. The video is called The Great Imbalance. I've shown it a couple times before here. It's about six or seven years old now. But I'm just going to keep showing it until someone makes a better video or until the statistics start to change significantly, but afterward, lest this just feel like like a gripe fest, like let's just hate on, take a dump on the, the, the 21st century American church for how self-serving we are, I want to try and offer some positive suggestions as we, as we close for how we can avoid this hindrance to the gospel spread and, and do better as a church going forward. So let's watch together, and then I'll offer you some practical suggestions.
0: Jesus told us 2,000 years ago that our mission is to go and make disciples of all nations. He also promised us that only after we accomplish that task will we receive the blessing of his return. So, how are we doing accomplishing our mission? To answer that, let's classify the seven billion people on the earth today into three groups. Let's start with the Christians. About 33% of the world's population would identify itself as Christian. We call this segment of the population, World C. C for Christian. It's important to remember that not all of the people that fall into World C are true believers in Christ. They merely identify themselves as Christian because of nominal belief in Jesus or because they live in a country where everyone is considered Christian, so they would do the same. Next, there's the 38 percent of the world that has access to the gospel but has chosen not to follow Jesus. They have Bibles in their language, churches nearby, friends or co-workers who are potentially Christians, or access to other Christian resources in their language. These people have access to the good news but just haven't acted on it yet. This segment of the population is called World B. That leaves us with 29% of the world, just over one out of every four people on this planet who not only have never heard of Jesus, they have no chance of hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. They have no access to the gospel, no Bibles, no churches, no believers nearby, no chance to learn about Jesus. We call that 29% World A. Now on to missionaries. Only one out of every 1,800 Christians in World C decides to serve as a cross-cultural missionary. So, we can pull 400,000 missionaries out of that World C population. That's our total cross-cultural missionary force worldwide. Did you know that 72% of all our missionaries are going to World C? That's right! The vast majority of the missionaries being sent out are going to the people of the world that have Bibles and established churches. Twenty-five percent of the missionaries are sent to World B, where there is already some access to the church and to the Bible. That leaves only three percent of the total missionary force to handle all of World A, the section of the population without any chance of hearing about Jesus. Twenty-nine percent of the world has no way to hear the gospel, but we're sending only a tiny portion of our Christian workers to them. What about finances? Annually, all those Christians in World C earn a total of $42 trillion. And, together, they give about $700 billion to Christian causes each year. That includes everything. Christian nonprofits, churches, youth programs, missions, etc. Can you do the math? Less than 2% of Christian income is being given to Christ's causes. Out of that $700 billion given to all Christian causes, Only $45 billion is given to missions specifically. That's a little over six percent. In fact, there is more money reported embezzled from the church each year than is given to missions. Remember those 400,000 missionaries? We have $45 billion to support them and their cross-cultural work, but how exactly is it allocated? Well, $39 billion goes to World Sea every year. Yep, 87% of that mission's money is being spent in areas of the world that have Bibles and churches available. 5.4 billion or 12% goes to World B each year, those that have access to the gospel message but have rejected it. That leaves only 450 million dollars or 1% of all mission's money going to World A, the least reached people of the world. To put that into perspective, annually Americans spend more money on Halloween costumes for their pets than get sent to World A. To summarize, only 3% of our missionary force, armed with only 1% of missions giving, is going out to reach the two billion people who don't have access to the gospel. Two billion people are still waiting for the good news of Jesus Christ. So here's a question for you. What are you going to do to change that? I
1: wanna suggest four practical answers to that question of things we can do together as a church. Number one, we can pray. We should pray. No great movement of the gospel has ever started, been sustained, gone anywhere, done anything without prayer. We pray for the unreached. We should pray specifically for our missionaries here at West Hills who are going to the unreached. We should pray together as a family. We need to teach our kids, tell our kids about our missionaries. We need to tell our kids about uh, these unreached ethnies by name. Marshall Henley told me about a great app website where you know, it'll send you a different you know, email or text or whatever every day with a different people group so you can learn about who, who these people are. Stories. Share their stories so that they become people and not just numbers. These are people. These are human beings. They're living dying without ever hearing about Jesus. We need to pray for them. Number two, we can support missionaries financially who are going to the unreached. Again, one way you can do that is by giving to West Hills. We tithe on your tithe. 10% of your 10% goes to missions. I get it. That's diluted, right? That's 1%, 1% so why not just give directly then? Well, my kids need to eat too, for one thing. Um, I, I hope that, you know, we can pay down our stupid building debt together as a church. I mean, we should have goals about these things. Every year that I've been, I've been at West Hills for seven years now. Every year I ask, you know, how, how much longer we got on our mortgage? It's like the same answer, eight to ten years. I don't know if we're just paying interest. I don't know if it's the way banks work or what. We, we've got to do something about this. We've got to get, get out from under this so that we can actually use our resources the way that Jesus wants us to. Uh, uh, hopefully, soon, we'll be giving 20, 30, 50% of your tithes here to Global Missions to the Unreached. Number three, we can serve I serve on our missions team. Truthfully, we have bigger needs right now, volunteer-wise as a church and other ministries, but Thad would, I'm sure, tell you he's not going to turn you away from the missions team. Specifically, what we do need is for every member of our missions team to be sold out for reaching the unreached with the gospel. And then you don't just need to serve in a formal capacity through West Hills, together collectively, serve outside the walls of the church as well. The great thing about the global world that we live in today is that the unreached are coming to us in unprecedented numbers. To give you just one example, in this past year, St. Louis has apparently grown one of the largest Afghan refugee populations in the entire country. Are we reaching them? They're coming to us. Are we, West Hills, driving the the, the 15, 20 minutes it takes to go and reach them with the gospel? Number four, pray specifically. Lastly, pray specifically about whether God is calling you to go. Pori authentes, to go. Travel, journey, maybe die. Jim Elliot, is God calling us to go? Are we regularly praying and asking, laying our lives on the line with open hands, saying, God, here I am. Send me, use me. However, not my will, but your will be done. However you would use me. Is God calling us to lay down our comfortable lives here? Calling you to lay down your youth, the best years of your life, your 20s, to go and serve overseas? Is God calling you to lay down your career, your retirement, your golden years, your victory lap, to serve Him instead and to serve those He desperately wants to reach and save with the gospel? If we want to see the kind of miracles, the kind of gospel growth, that we witness on every page of the book of Acts, we're going to have to begin to renormalize in the church today the kind of radical self-service and self-sacrifice that we see in the early church for the sake of the advance of the gospel. That open-handed living, God, here I am, use me, however you would, for your purposes. It's the kind of self-sacrifice that we find in the example of a man like Jim Elliott. The world would call Jim Elliot a fool. Jesus said whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. And you better believe that Jim Elliot doesn't regret his decision to live for Jesus right now. Lay down his life for Christ. As he famously said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. It's not foolish to give up what you can't keep anyway. This life is, it's an hourglass. It's running out. It's trying to hold on to this life is like trying to hold on to water. It's going to slip through your fingers. It's a 100% mortality rate these days. <laughs> the question is, how are you going to use the little bit of time that you have here on, on earth he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Treasures in heaven. Will we go? Will that be our story as a church? Maybe so.